0: and gentlemen welcome to our next guest is hello and welcome to another our next guest is this is a conversation where we meet the country's leading speakers and entertainers in the corporate and events world and we find out what really makes them tick my name's michael pope and i'm here of course with carson white from leading voice carson who is our next guest
1: Our next guest is considered to be one of Australia's most influential global futurist and media commentators in national and foreign affairs. He is an economic and social commentator, strategic planner, author and broadcaster. As a broadcaster, he appears on Australian radio on average of once per day. He also is the foreign affairs editor on Channel 7's Sunrise program. He teaches political science on the Sydney International Campus of Boston University, USA. And if all that was not enough, he has been a member of the prestigious international think tank, the Club of Rome, since 1993. Here today to peer into his crystal ball and tell us what our future holds, please welcome our next guest, Dr. Keith Souter. Welcome, Keith. Thank you.
0: First question is the Club of Rome. Couldn't you find a gym closer to home?
2: <laughs> um, no, well, no, the Club of Rome was established back uh, in the late 1960s, published their first report, 1972, called The Limits to Growth. And the, the people who created it said we've got to find a way of continuing this debate over what we now call the environmental crisis and climate change. This is a group that helped trigger the consideration of the environment. Um and so they created this club. It consists of 100 members. It's by invitation only. And so you come into the, the organisation with a bit of a background and you then get to mix with a variety of other people from around the world. It's, it's a great way for me to keep up to date with what's going on around the rest of the world. Absolutely. You raised climate change
0: right at the start. So what's your prediction about climate change and humanity
2: and the future? Well, let me just comment about your, the use of the word prediction. When I talk about the future, I talk about it in three ways. One is prediction, which is what you're asking for. I don't think most predictions work out. So every year you get predictions about who's going to win the Melbourne Cup, etc. We make predictions, but they're, they're not often correct. The second way I think about the future is having a vision. So you, you have a vision, something in the future, and then you build a bridge back from the future to the present. Like President Kennedy in 1962 said, we'll put a man on the moon by 1970, which was actually achieved by 1969. So that's the way of having something which you would like to see happen. There is a third way of thinking about the future, which is possible futures. So these are not necessarily being predicted. They're not necessarily what you would like to see happen, but you're asking the question, what could happen? What are the signs of change that are out there that we are simply not noticing? And that's basically where I spend most of my time when I come to think about the future. So when people say to me, what's the predictions about uh, climate change? Well, you can reel off all sorts of figures, but as I've already indicated, prediction is actually very difficult. What I try to do is to say, well, there are a number of possibilities, right? So I can give you the two extreme versions. One is we're going to destroy the Earth, and that will be done around the middle of the century. won't destroy all of the planet, we're just simply a cancer on the surface of the planet. Right. So we will make life difficult for ourselves and other living creatures on the surface, but basically the planet will continue in one form or another, but it will be very difficult to live on this planet. So that's one scenario. The alternative scenario is, and you're always talking about two or four scenarios, never three, because the client <laughs> always goes to the middle one. The purpose of scenario planning is to get people out of their comfort zone and get them exposed to new ways of thinking and new ideas. So a second scenario is that, in fact, we, we do come to our senses. We do end up with um, creating a new type of green economy. We're seeing signs of that, not so much here in Australia, but we're seeing signs of that in, in Europe. Uh, China claims to be going down that path and also parts of the United States. So you've got people who are saying we can create a di- a different way of running an economy without having to pollute so much. And we could, for example, create a circular economy. In other words, that um, everything, instead of just being made and then discarded, you try to find ways of recycling it. So that's what's called the circular economy. So in the future, for example, you won't buy a refrigerator You will simply get a refrigerator delivered to your home at a cost. And then when the refrigerator dies, instead of it going down to the tip, the company that made it has to come and take it away. That gives them an incentive to make refrigerators that can be recycled or have components that can be renewed. So there are actually two different scenarios. So when you do scenario planning, you're always working at the same time in multiple worlds. Um, so when, you, uh, when I come across people who are very depressed about climate change, I try to explain that there is, in fact, a set of alternative scenarios whereby we don't necessarily wipe ourselves out. Carson, I think one more question and that'll be our 20 minutes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's Kate, a fantastic answer. Keith, I can clearly see how dynamic you'd be on stage.
2: Tell us about your background. What were you like at school? Were you in the disaster. library of- a <laughs> I was an educational disaster. I left school at 15, which was one of the best things I ever did, which you could do in those days, and then went to work in the civil service. Later on, I became involved with the youth movement of the UN Association in Great Britain and uh, learned to speak at Hyde Park Speaker's Corner. If right. you can survive that audience, you can survive any audience in the world.
1: I don't think there's a speaker in Australia that's actually ever spoken at Hyde Park Speaker's Corner. Tell us about well, that I started experience. there
2: as a teenager with very rough audiences, I can tell you. And what so, were kind of things were you pontificating on? Oh, with well, the UN, of course. I right. was trying to explain how this 20-year-old organisation needed to be much more supported by the British taxpayers. Mm. So I'd be talking about disarmament and foreign aid, the need to end racism in South Africa, et cetera. Um, And that always got the crowds going at Speaker's Corner. So that's by being thrown in at the deep end, that's how I learned to speak. And so I've been speaking from a late teenage period, about the age of, what, 16, 17, continued all the way through. And then later on, what, late 80s, early 90s, organisations then started to pay me. Obviously, I was being paid as a university speaker. But this would be, say, the CPA, the accounting body, where I would speak at their conferences, and then they would give me a fee. Right. Uh, So I didn't regard myself as a professional speaker because I was earning income from other sources. And then in 2003, we got the invasion of Iraq, and I was then on Channel 7 every morning and then Sky TV at night. And the late Diana Mann, who was with then celebrity speakers, later was with ICMI, she just rang me up out of the blue. And she said, have you ever thought about going on to the professional speaking circuit? And so I then changed from being an amateur to a professional. And so I I was with uh, the late Diane Mann in her various permutations of careers. Uh, So she she was really fantastic for me. And then ultimately, I ended up with uh, Carson and Simone at Leading Voice. At
0: 16, you were talking about the UN and trying to garner enthusiasm around that. Have you always had a
2: focus on the big issues? Yeah, and that's one of the things that's appealed to me about the Club of Rome, and I think that's what, why the Club of Rome issued the invitation for me to join them. There's only 100 members worldwide. Um, the problem with academics generally is that they get to know more and more about less and less until they end up knowing everything about nothing. <laughs> I've gone the other way. So I have three PhDs, and each of them tries to show the connections between various issues. So I'm uh, asked to give talks now on complex topics and try to make them come alive. So each presentation is tailored to suit that audience. I produce a handout for each presentation, which either people can have as paper or they can download through their device. So that becomes an aid memoir mm. because I want people to go away knowing something and also to be optimistic that they can do something about it trying to make the world a better place. You speak about making the simple from the complex. Is that an easy thing to do to an audience? No, it's not. And I think we're living in a world of greater complexity, greater confusion, and it's not being helped by the rise of things like social media Mm. and narrowcasting. So in the old days of broadcasting, you'd have a small number of stations transmitting to a large number of people. Now we have a large number of stations transmitting to a small number of people. Each person is now a niche audience. And it means, therefore, that we're getting a breakdown in national consciousness because there are now very few national events, maybe sporting events. But generally speaking, people are living in their own little silos, in their own little communities. Mm. And that can mean that they can be blind to new trends that are emerging. So what I try to do is to run across those silos and just simply say, look, these are some of the bigger trends that are going to come along. I started giving talks on the coronavirus crisis, and my approach was informed by what we remembered from the great flu pandemic of the early 1920s, at the end of World War One, killed more people than World War One. You were there, weren't you, Keith? Uh, sorry? You were there at that time? <laughs> Sometimes I feel old enough to feel that I was. Right. But, but I can draw on history. Yeah. Everything has a context right now in today's 24 7 world people just bounce from one sensation to the next what i try to do is to give an historical context and i look at how much the flu pandemic had, had brought about change within society and i was able to say look i think this coronavirus is going to be just as bad now thankfully the figures of fatality are not as bad it's the first time In world history for example that governments have closed down economies you can look at the 20th century and look at the figures for economic growth you can't see the two world wars Mm. the economies continue to flourish Mm. at the wars operating because you had men going off to fight you had homemakers being recruited to work in factories etc whereas what we've now lived through in the year 2020 has been this reduction in economic activity, totally unprecedented. The British government, which has got the best collection of national statistics, had to go back to the year 1707, the year of the great frost, to come across another period in which the British economy had collapsed so quickly. So it's the biggest collapse for 300 years.
1: I like the term you uh, mentioned earlier, narrow casting. Do you think that will ultimately disseminate so many of the important issues around climate change and, um, and the future of the planet so much that nothing will get done because politicians will be rendered a bit useless because people are just so focused on this narrow casting?
2: Well, I think there is a real problem with narrow casting. It's very difficult to bring about mass movements. But, of course, it's worth being in mind that politicians are not necessarily the drivers of change. They're often amongst the last to learn. Yes. So the drivers of change are the big corporations and changes in consumer patents, et cetera. And so the politicians really scramble to try to keep up with what's going on. And when you look at how much the world is changing, we're on the verge... Of a major revolution, right now it could well be that we're about to destroy ourselves because of right. climate change, nuclear weapons. But we're also perhaps on the base of on the verge of moving into what's called the fourth industrial revolution, which we will see enhanced use of information technology, the blending of information technology and the human body, what we call transhumanism, so that, for example, uh, we will be able to uh, somebody wants to go to France for a weekend or for a, a vacation. They'll be able to hire a chip which will go into their brain, which will give them the basis to be able to speak French. And then when they return to their own country, they can just simply surrender the chip because they've got no further use for it. That is transhumanism. That is the blending of information technology and the human body. On top of that, you've got all the issues of the uh, recycling economy, the, the blue planet thinking. In other words, that you can make greater use out of existing resources So we're on the verge of major changes. What worries me is that people get so obsessed about looking at cat videos, et cetera, that they're going to get blindsided by change, and then they get angry, and then we see, as we've seen in other countries, this rise of extremist politicians who are able to exploit that fear and anger that is felt by many people. The value of scenario planning is that you get to get those warnings early.
0: Speaking of change, my next question is one word. China? China? And let's cut to the chase. We know the current situation and perhaps the reasons for it. What's your solution as to how we can get things back together?
2: Well, I'm not sure there is a solution. The problem is that uh, we may be in what's called the Thucydides trap. You think that's difficult in English. You should try it in Chinese. (laughs) So Thucydides wrote about the clash between Athens and Sparta, an existing Greek city-state being challenged by a rival state. And if you look back over Western history, because the West has dominated the world for the last 500 years, if you look back over the last 500 years of the world, there have been 16 occasions in which uh, a major power has been challenged by a, a rising power, such as England and Germany. And that is, and of those 16 occasions, 12 are in, have ended in war. Now, the challenge for China is how does it manage to rise without triggering a war with the United States. That is the big problem for Australia and the United States and China. How do we get this happening? China itself intends to be the number one power in the world by the year 2049, which is the 100th anniversary of the Chinese revolution. And they're making great progress towards that um, in terms of uh, their economic growth, et cetera. So, They are on a collision course, the United States and China. Now, we are just simply part of the collateral damage Mm. in Australia, but there is a major challenge, and I'm not sure that Americans and Chinese, well, I think the Chinese are different. The Chinese do know there's a problem. I think a lot of Americans are just unaware Mm. of what it is. They're too busy chasing a handful of extremist Muslims around the world. You say they have a target for 2049. When does any superpower
0: know that they've arrived? What, what are the signs that say, oh, now we are the biggest in the world?
2: I think you know when you've arrived when people suddenly turn to you for leadership. So if you go back to the United States, for example, in the year 1940, just before the United States got involved lately in World War II, the army of Greece was larger than the army of the United States. And then you get the Pearl Harbor attack on December 7, 1941. And then between 1941 and 1945, we get this incredible industrial transformation. We hear a lot, by the way, about the rise of China and all the rest of it. But I've got to tell you, look at those four years in the United States. Quite amazing. You know, At the end, they were producing an aircraft carrier every week. It's the biggest oh. mobilization in the history of the world in terms of fighting that war. And in 1945, Europe was in ruins, Britain which had been the previous great power was now broke, and so people just turned to the United States including Australia. They just so the issue will be then in 2049 will countries by that year be turning to China for leadership. Now China is trying to establish that leadership in terms of climate change, protection of the environment, etc. Uh, So it'll be interesting to see to what extent they can proceed with that. Or will there be a reluctance on the part of certain people who say, we see how you govern your country, we don't want you introducing your techniques into our country. In which case, then we perhaps start to look to India, or a coalition of countries, which would include India, the United States, Japan, and, and Australia. What's very clear from what you said is that
0: I need to invest in those head chips that make me speak Chinese. Um, <laughs> that's really my focus. Keith, you are no doubt a dynamic speaker because I reckon any audience member in any congregation could throw anything at you and you would deliver so 100%. Tell me about what a conference might expect when they
2: engage Keith Souter. Well, it depends on the context in which they've engaged me. So I, I do obviously the keynote presentations, these are the big picture presentations. Uh, which perhaps might last for about an hour, depending on the timetable. So I do the big picture, depending presentation. on the amount of applause at the end, you mean? <laughs> hmm. So number one is the big picture presentation. Number two, I work with small groups. So I've, you know, I've said that the work that I cover are both substantive items like the future of China, future of the United States, future of the U.S. dollar, etc. And then I also deal with actual techniques. You know, how do we think about the future by way of prediction? How do we create? better futures for ourselves? How do we do scenario planning? And a lot of that I also do in workshops, which might last for an entire weekend, just taking people through in a company setting or a government setting, a a department. How do you think about the future and take people through those various techniques as well? And then thirdly, I'm also an MC. And my style of being an MC is to be businesslike. I go to some conferences where MCs seem to think that they're always the guest speaker. So they try to overshadow the real speaker that they're there to introduce and to close. So my job is to keep the conference moving smoothly, making sure everybody gets a chance to participate. But I'm not the first speaker there. You've got these other speakers who are on the program. My job is just to make sure everything flows along smoothly. And so that's the third role that I carry out, which is that of being an MC. You've said
0: the future a couple of times and clearly you have a focus on that in your assessment of audiences that you're speaking to, how are they emotionally feeling about the future? You know, um, uh, post World War Two, there was the the fear and the angst about, you know, nuclear annihilation. I don't think that's present in our psyche now, but what's your assessment of how Australians
2: feel about the future? I think there are a number of different ways in which people do think about the future, if they think about the future at all. I think that, as I've said, because particularly with social media, you're so narrowly focused on what's going on on your Facebook feeds at the moment. But I think I I do come across a a lot of people who have all sorts of anxieties, and the coronavirus crisis has added to those anxieties, but they're hearing a lot about climate change, particularly getting education for their children who come home with all sorts of ideas about the problems of climate change, running out of resources. The nuclear threat is still there. Mm-hmm. And we shouldn't dismiss it. Okay, it wasn't as bad as when I started to give speeches on the topic <laughs> 50 years ago, mm. uh, but there's still a lot of nuclear weapons in the world. We can still destroy life on the surface of this planet <laughs> with nuclear weapons. So I come across those, but I also come across other people who are optimistic that we're going to be able to get, find a way out of this. They're particularly people with a business background, You know, because their assumption has always got to be there's going to be customers for me in the future. Yeah. That's what keeps them going. That's why they get out of bed in the morning. They want to go out and find new customers. (laughs) Keith, I don't (laughs) think we've ever had a guest before
0: who opened with climate change and closed with nuclear annihilation. Um, (laughs) I I repeat, you would be an awesome presenter or MC at any function because of your wealth uh, and breadth of knowledge about this world that we live on. Thank you so much for your time today.
1: Thank you what keith does i think better than anyone that speaks in this area is that ability to take a really complex topic and disseminate it down into some bite-sized chunks that hopefully get people to think about the future in a way and it's not all doom and gloom as keith pointed out there is some some real um, really good things going on on the planet as well if you would like to find out more about uh, keith Suter and the number of different topic areas he covers and how he can tailor A keynote for your next presentation or have him as an MC, please visit Keith
0: That was Our Next Guest is with Carson White from Leading Voice and your MC, Michael Pope. To hear more of our guests, you can find us on iTunes or simply visit www.ournextguestis.com.au. But until next time, let's take a break.